Good evening and welcome everyone. You all doing okay tonight? Thank you for coming this evening. Uh, tonight we're going to continue our study of Created to Draw Near. And uh, let's just have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father in heaven, we thank you and call upon you tonight for uh, your grace and uh, for your blessing upon this time of study. We are thankful that you are our great and mighty creator God and that uh, we can draw near to you uh, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his uh, precious shed blood upon the cross and through the new and living way that he has opened up for us to come into your presence. We're thankful, Father, for uh, the privileges that you've given to us in the gospel and that you have adopted us into your family. And now we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Uh, we thank you, Father, for this evening, the time to fellowship together and pray together and study together. And we pray your blessings on it. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're looking at, uh, hopefully, chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Created to Draw Near. And this first section of the book is uh, looking at the theme of the priesthood of God's people uh, from the perspective of the Garden of Eden. Uh, so taking us back to the beginning of God's original creation and the nearness and the relationship that was there between God and his image bearers. But that sense has been lost through the fall, but which God is renewing through redemption and ultimately in the new creation. And so we're continuing to look at that first section of the Garden of Eden. And tonight we're looking at chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapter 6 is on discernment lost, discernment lost. And his main text for this is in the last part of Genesis 3, where uh, Adam and Eve uh, suffer the repercussions of their choice to disobey God's command. The repercussions of the fall and the, the consequences that flow from that. And so he quotes Genesis 3.22 at the beginning of the lesson, and he says, The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And he talks about at the beginning how in the fall, really humanity has been downgraded. Humanity lost a certain element of its status after the fall. So uh, we were created as image bearers of God. Uh, Psalm 8 says that we are crowned with glory and honor as image bearers of God. But in the fall, uh, some of that honor, some of that glory uh, has been lost uh, because of uh, sin and its effects. And one of the things that he points out, and I've seen this in other commentaries on Genesis 2, is the fact that really what we had in the temptation of the serpent and then the fall of Adam and Eve is we essentially had an inversion of the created order. So God created Adam, and out of Adam he created Eve, and to Adam and Eve he gave to them this uh, status of image bearers of God, 
and to rule over creation. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that as, as a part of their being made in the image of God, one of their functions will be to have dominion, to rule over creation. But then you get to Genesis 3, and the order of influence, the order of rule, if you will, is inverted. And you have the serpent, which is just an, uh, uh, an animal, you might say, part of the animal kingdom, a reptile, exerting influence over uh, Eve and then Adam. And so it's the exact opposite order of the creation order. And in this sense, humans' dignity was lost in the sense that humanity placed itself under the influence and leadership of a reptile, of a part of the animal kingdom, a non-image bearer of God. And then we have in Genesis 3.22 this statement that God says that seeing now that Adam and Eve have become like us, knowing good and evil. And one of the questions is, how do we understand that statement? Of course, we saw this uh, going back to chapter 2, where this tree itself is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what does that mean? And then we have Satan, or this, in this form of the serpent, tempting Eve, saying that um, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. And then later on, after they disobeyed and after they fell, God says, now that they have become like us, knowing good and evil, we must uh, expel them from the garden and so that they can't take of the tree of life and live. And so one of the questions then is, is in what sense is Adam and Eve like God? In, in the way that Genesis 3.22 says it, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So in what sense are Adam and Eve like God? And in what sense do they now know good and evil? And he talks about this a little bit in the chapter and he says one of the options is that the knowledge of good and evil is an experiential knowledge versus a theoretical knowledge. So that before the fall, Adam and Eve had received the command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day you eat of it, you will die. That is a theoretical knowledge of good and evil in the sense that it is something that they have been told, something that, that they understand conceptually, but something that they have not experienced. And so one view of this knowledge of good and evil is that when they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now they understand the difference between good and evil in an experiential sense. Uh, I'm not convinced that's the best way to understand this phrase. Uh, he puts forth an interpretation in the chapter that I had not heard before. And that is that one way of understanding the verse, Genesis 3.22, is that Adam and Eve did know good and evil, but now they've lost it. He says there's, that's one way of understanding it, that, that there was a sense in which they did have moral discernment, but now having disobeyed, they've lost that moral discernment. Uh, again, I'm not convinced that that's the best way to understand it. Uh, I surveyed some commentaries on Genesis 3 this afternoon, 
And I think probably the best way to understand this idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what Adam and Eve violated in the garden is essentially a self-gained knowledge sought by human autonomy rather than by submission to divine revelation. In other words, the, the idea is that Adam and Eve, in partaking of the fruit, said, I am going to determine what is good and evil. Not God telling me what is good and evil. And so what they're essentially claiming is a God-like autonomy or independence from God saying, I don't need someone else telling me what good and evil is. I'm going to be like God and determine for myself what is good and evil. Um, This is uh, Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Genesis. I'm just going to read a, a paragraph from him. He says, the idea of the knowledge of good and evil is wisdom. It is insight. But the wisdom literature, such as in Job and Proverbs, and he gives specific references in Job and Proverbs, the wisdom literature also makes it plain that there is a wisdom that is God's soul preserve, which man should not aspire to attain. Since a full understanding of God, the universe, and man's place in it is ultimately beyond human comprehension. So to pursue that wisdom or to pursue that knowledge without reference to revelation is to assert human autonomy and to neglect the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. So in this quest for autonomy, they are essentially bypassing revelation of what God has said and determining what is wisdom or what is knowledge on their own apart from submission to divine revelation. He goes on to say, um, the only proper posture of man, if he would be truly wise and lead a full life, is faith in God and not a professed self-sufficiency of knowledge. It is in this latter acceptation then that man is forbidden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they not assert their own autonomy but submit humbly to the revealed will of God of what is good and evil and he goes on and he says this interpretation appears to be confirmed by Ezekiel 28 which is the closest parallel to Genesis 2 and 3 which in, um, in its language describes how the king of Tyre was expelled from Eden for overweening pride and claiming himself to be, quote, wise as a God. Ezekiel 28, verse 6, and then verses 15 to 17. So in the garden, the revealed law of God amounted to the warning, do not eat this tree on pain of death. That was God's revealed will. In later Israel, many more laws were known And those who disobeyed them incurred the divine curse and risked death. Since the law was God-given, it could not be altered or added to by man. Thus, human moral autonomy was ruled out. In preferring human wisdom to divine law, Adam and Eve found death, not life. I think that is a great explanation of what Genesis 2 and 3 is about. 
in this issue of what the knowledge of good and evil was is that it was not that Adam and Eve didn't know the difference between good and evil because God had told them, right? God had revealed to them. Here's everything you can eat, everything in the garden, that's good. Here's what you may not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in in the middle of the garden, that's bad. So God had already given them the difference between good and evil. They didn't need to experience it to have that knowledge. Rather, what Satan tempted them with and offered to them was, in a sense, an autonomous position apart from God in which they could bring themselves out from underneath the revealed authority of God and say, I'm going to find out what good and evil is for myself. They sought wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. Therefore, they found a knowledge, but it wasn't God's knowledge. And so what they found in return was not anything like what the tempter promised them. Um, Here's another commentator on Genesis. This is Victor Hamilton. He says, God dialogues, this is on Genesis 3.22, says God dialogues with himself and observes that man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. In one sense, but in only one sense, what the serpent said was true. Man has become like God. But one suspects that these words in the serpent's mouth convey one thing and the same words in God's mouth say something else. The serpent held out to the couple the prospect that being like God would bring with it unlimited privileges, unheard of acquisitions and gifts. But rather than experiencing bliss, they encounter misery. Rather than sitting on a throne, they are expelled from the garden. Rather than new prerogatives, they experience only a reversal. The couple not only fail to gain something they do not presently have, the irony is that they lose what they currently possess, unsullied fellowship with God. He says they found nothing and lost everything. They went out looking for more, and they came away with less than what they had. And so it was a a seeking of knowledge of good and evil apart from what God had revealed to them, thus bringing themselves out of a submission to God's revelation. And so the question then is, do we have knowledge by revelation or do we seek knowledge by human autonomy? Seeking our own knowledge and wisdom makes us quote, like God in one sense in terms of our own autonomy and self-determination, but it makes us less like God in every other sense. Because now we no longer are imaged after the moral righteousness of God. We are no longer in harmony and fellowship with God. So yeah, we, we asserted our own autonomy and independence, but in the, in the meantime, we lost everything else including life itself. So disregarding God's revelation, which is what God says, actually makes us less like God and makes us less human. Because humans are made in what? The image of God. And so in becoming less like God, we are also becoming less human. Because human beings are made to be in the image of God. And ironically, in doing whatever they felt like doing, 
Adam and Eve became more like the animal kingdom than they did like God, which are not made in the image of God. And so he says in the chapter, in order to be full functioning priests, we need a steely moral discernment. To lose it is to become less noble and honorable. It is to become less human. Yet, the Lord has determined that nothing will interfere with his priestly call in our lives, so he will do it. He will set us on a course of wisdom and discernment that will culminate in the spirit of wisdom being poured out on all of us. That wisdom and discernment will be essential for our closeness to God, which is our destiny. And then what he does through the rest of this chapter is he kind of walks through kind of a, a biblical history of this idea of discernment and wisdom and the way that God had called his people to it, but the way in which they repeatedly fail. And so, for example, we have in Deuteronomy 4, see, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What is the key to wisdom and understanding but obeying God's commands? But what does Israel do? Israel disobeys God's commands, don't they? The whole history of Israel is disregarding God's covenant and following idols and not showing themselves to be wise and understanding. In essence, repeating the pattern of Adam and Eve. God gave Adam and Eve wisdom through obedience, and they said, no, we're going to seek our own knowledge, which made them foolish, didn't it? Same thing with Israel. God gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the law through Moses. And God says, here's wisdom through obedience to my word. And Israel said, no, we're going to do our own thing and seek our own wisdom, but in the meantime became fools became foolish. And so then we come across 1 Kings 3. And this is God um, giving to Solomon a heart of wisdom. Solomon asks for it in 1 Kings 3.9. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, and God gave him wisdom, didn't he? But yet we read the life of Solomon, and what did Solomon do? He multiplied wives to himself, which the word of God specifically said not to do. He started to wander off, and in the later part of his life, we see because of all these marriages and political entanglements that Solomon got involved in, his heart started to wander from the Lord again, into idolatry. And so we have the prophets throughout uh, much of Israel's history calling them back to the covenant. This is Isaiah saying, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God had given them wisdom, didn't he? But yet they continually walked away from it, seeking their own wisdom and ended up inverting good and evil. Jeremiah 4.22, My people are fools. 
They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. Departing from God's wisdom is to end up in foolishness, not wisdom. But, again, as I read from the quote from the book earlier, God is, God's purpose in calling us to discernment and calling us to be wise priests in his presence, God's purpose in that is not going to be thwarted, is it? And so we read about the new covenant in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three that a part of the new covenant is I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, and I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So a part of God's plan is to renew us by the spirit, isn't it? To renew us by the spirit and to put his wisdom and understanding in our hearts so that we can come to the New Testament and see that solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And so he concludes the chapter by saying, I thought I had that quote up here, but I don't. He concludes the chapter by saying, obedience to Christ is not a burden to bear. Obedience to Christ is not a burden to bear. Instead, it points the way to being truly human. An unfettered conscience, an unhindered nearness to him, and the pleasure of his hospitality and protection. And so Jesus' word, his commands, these are not burdensome, are they? They are a means to delight. They are a means to nearness to God. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10? Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, who are weary. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so to come up under the yoke of Christ and to submit to his authority, to his revelation, is not to take a heavy burdensome burden upon us. Rather, it is to take a joyful uh, delight upon us and to to follow then with Christ in harmony and fellowship with him. What's the idea of a yoke? A yoke is that people are working together in harmony, right? Or animals, I should say. You put a yoke upon oxen so that those oxen would plow together in harmony heading the same direction. The idea is if we come up under the, the lordship of Christ and his revelation, we're taking his yoke, we're walking the same path that Christ is walking. And in that, there is joy. In that, there is peace. There is nearness to him. And fully living out this uh, priesthood, this nearness that God has called us to experience. Um, chapter 7 is then taking it to the next step in the story when Adam and Eve are put outside the Garden of Eden. So it's life outside the most holy place. He says in Genesis 3 and then into chapter 4, we see the march of death. And this is what God said, right? If you disobey my word, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will experience what? Death. 
physical death. And so we start to read about in the early chapters of Genesis, physical death beginning to to be experienced by human beings. But even beyond that, we have spiritual death, don't we? A, A spiritual death that is ultimately separation from God. It is a breach in the relationship with God. And we also see it in a separation, a breach in the relationship with one another. Um, And we see that unfold in Genesis 3 after the fall. So in our breach, in our relationship with one another, we see our own blindness to our personal wrongdoings and how we magnify the wrongs of others. That's just part of our human nature now, isn't it? And it started in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 11, God came to Adam and Eve and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so a part of our breach in our relationship with God is it overflows and impacts our relationship with other people, and we start to point and accuse, don't we? We start to point and accuse, just like uh, Adam pointed to Eve, and then Eve pointed to the serpent. And so excusing ourselves and passing blame is our default setting. That's just what we think. When we are accused of something, when somebody comes questioning whether we've done something, if we're about to be in trouble, our natural instinct, our knee-jerk response is, it wasn't me, it was them. Or even if we do accept some amount of blame, we want to put the, in, the influence or the impetus for our wrongdoing on someone else. Well, yeah, I did it, but this person started it, or this person did this, or this person did that, that made me do it. So we always want to try to excuse ourselves and pass blame to others. And so we stand in this position of thinking that we are right, everyone else is wrong. And Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there's a way that appears to be right, but it, in the end, it leads to death, doesn't it? Adam and Eve are going to find that out. There's a way that seems right to ourselves, but the end of it is death. And so we point and we accuse, and really what that is is a means of hiding. It's a means of covering up our own sins, deflecting attention, right? So the attention's on us, but then, no, look at this person. We want to deflect attention so that the focus is not on ourselves. He says, the accusations start flying when we want to cover up certain behaviors. So when you blame, consider what you are trying to hide. It's a good thought, isn't it? Anytime we blame, we should ask ourselves, what am I trying to hide? What am I trying to cover up of myself? And we see God confronting Adam and Eve about their nakedness and their shame. And so what happened was rebellion brought guilt, guilt brought shame, and shame revealed their nakedness, their destitution. And so God, in his mercy, clothed Adam and Eve. 
They tried themselves, right? They sewed fig leaves together. They tried this makeshift way to try to cover up their own faults, but it was insufficient. And so God clothed Adam and Eve. He killed an animal, made animal skins for them and covered them. And in that, we see a covering of atonement. A part of the idea of the word atonement means to cover, to cover over, to put away. So there is in this probably in this very first instance of animal death, the idea of an animal standing in our place and our sins in some sense being atoned for by death and by the shedding of blood. But he suggests another meaning here too, or maybe an additional significance in that with the animal skins was also a perpetual reminder of atonement that they wore on themselves a reminder of death. That because of their sin, a death had to happen. He says, among our many spiritual disabilities is that we so quickly forget reality. As a way to jostle a dull memory, the Lord clothed humanity with animal skins. And he says, for the ancient Hebrew, the message was clear. If you follow an animal, a serpent, then you will look like an animal and wear the skins of an animal. If you forsake the path of life, you will wear death. Being draped with a dead animal was no reason for boasting. It was a statement of spiritual need. It was a reminder that death had to happen in order for our sins to be covered. And then we see the ramifications, the consequences of their sin in that they're going from the inside out. Humanity's search for independence and autonomy only brought separation. That's the irony of it, isn't it? The serpent came to them and said, you'll be like God, you'll be like knowing good and evil. It was a a temptation, an appeal to their desire for autonomy, to self-sufficiency, to be on their own two feet, if you will. But in so doing, what they ended up with was isolation and separation. They wanted to be on their own, and they got it. But not in the way that they thought. They ended up with separation, aloneness, isolation. And ironically, Adam's original role was to work and protect the garden, wasn't it? Genesis 2.15, work the garden. And the word that's used there is literally to protect, to guard, to watch over the garden. But now, at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are on the outside looking in and the garden is going to be protected from them. And God sends his cherubim, his angels with flaming swords to guard the way to the tree of life so that they will not be able to come in and partake of it. Adam was supposed to be on the inside guarding it. Now he's on the outside being with the garden guarding it from him. And so he drove the man out and he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. But in this killing of an animal, Adam and Eve learn a lesson And that is that a substitute could stand in our place. 
a substitute could stand in our place. In some sense, the blood of an animal for the blood of humanity. Instead of Adam and Eve immediately dying, God gave them mercy and killed an animal instead and covered them in their garments, in their skins. And he says, this became a key insight for God's priests. God will, in fact, accept substitutes in our place. That becomes the whole framework of the sacrificial priestly system, doesn't it? Through the whole rest of the biblical story. That there is a, some, an animal in our place taking our, our spot that we should have died. But in really, it's an imperfect system, isn't it? It's an imperfect system because there's really not, in the full sense of it, an animal truly cannot stand in the place of a human being because an animal is not made in the image of God, but a human being is. So an inferior creature cannot take the place of a superior creature. Ultimately, it is not sufficient. And so this system of an animal taking our place, it's really grounded in the mercy of God, isn't it? It's not in the sufficiency of the animal. It's not in the sufficiency of the blood of the animal. It's in the mercy of God, and it's forward-looking, isn't it, to the sufficiency of Christ and his blood. But Adam and Eve, and then their children, end up farther from God's presence. And so Adam and Eve are kicked out, and they're sent eastward from Eden, But then in the next chapter, we see their children, especially Cain, even wandering farther from God's presence. And we know the story of Cain and Abel, how that in their two offerings, Cain's was rejected, but Abel's was accepted. And Cain, just like we do oftentimes, we try to justify ourselves. We try to show how we are right, how others are wrong. Self-justification But then in the meantime, we condemn others. And when it became clear that God was going to accept Abel's but not his, then Cain moved to jealousy, didn't he? He moved to jealousy. He moved to envy. And that jealousy and envy converted into hatred. And that hatred manifested itself finally in murder, didn't it? Blame is a form of judgment. I am right, you are wrong. It is a kind of a curse. May you be damned. May you be condemned rather than me. We want the best for ourselves and punishment to fall on another. Murder was inevitable. He says murder, hatred is the end result of when we try to justify ourselves and condemn others. He says this is what happened with Adam and Eve. And so Cain ended up venturing farther and farther from Eden, farther from the presence of God. And he shows how this looks in relationship to the tabernacle, the the most holy place, the holy place. And so we have the Garden of Eden itself where the tree of life is and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. It is uh, equivalent, if you will, to the most holy place where God dwells. This is where God walks with his people Then you have Eden, the larger holy place in which the garden is. And you have outside of it, just like outside the tabernacle, the altar, 
of Cain and Abel where an offering was brought, but then Cain's was rejected, and so where does he go? He, he heads off toward Nod, even farther away from the presence of God. In fact, Genesis 4 says that. Cain wandered out away from the presence of the Lord. He continued to go farther and farther from God's presence. And so humanity was farther from God's inner room. Yet, here's where the story is headed. Nothing had changed. God created us to be a priesthood and to live at the meeting place of heaven and earth. And he would do it. So where we failed, God is going to take the responsibility upon himself, isn't he? To rescue us from our fall. And again, to draw us near. And so in our own desire to be autonomous, independent from God, what we actually end up in is foolishness and isolation and aloneness and death. But God being merciful comes out seeking the lost, doesn't he? He comes out seeking the lost, seeking to draw us home and to draw us near again in his grace. And so this, um, these two lessons, these two chapters, to me were a good reminder of how in our fallen state, we have this tendency to want to decide our own morality for ourselves. And you can see that on display in our culture, can't you? And in the chapter, I think it was in chapter six, he brought up the issue of sexuality again and how this uh, works itself out in our culture. God says something about sexual relations. It is to be within marriage. But what does humanity say? Humanity says, no, I'm going to decide for myself what is good and evil, right? So the sexual relations is almost like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, here's, what, here's how you can partake of it. And this is the only way you can partake of it. Don't partake of it any other way. Because if you do, you're disobedient to me. But just like Adam and Eve, we look at that fruit and we see that it looks good for eating. And we say, you know what? I'm going to eat it anyway because I'm going to decide for myself what is good and what is evil. And we put ourselves outside the revealed will of God and we assume this place of autonomy. But in the end, it brings death, doesn't it? It brings death and destruction. And in every aspect of our lives, there is that temptation to, to know what God's revealed word says, but then in our heart to say, I'm going to go off seeking my own wisdom. And so we need to be reminded that to be a priest of God, to draw near, is to be very near to his word, very near to his revelation, because that is where we find wisdom, not in our own self-proclaimed autonomy of looking for it for ourselves. As Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In his wisdom is how we gain knowledge. And so my prayer for us is that we would learn some of the lessons that he has for us in these two chapters and learn lessons from Adam and Eve and, and their desire for autonomy and learn lessons from Cain and how our ten tendency to blame others and be jealous of others can lead to lead down the road to hatred and to death. 
and far away from the presence of God. And so may we draw near, and one of the best ways that we can draw near to God is to draw near to him through his revealed word, which he has given us in the Holy Scriptures. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, I thank you for the time that we've had tonight to just reflect on these stories from Genesis and the Garden of Eden, to think about how uh, we got to this point where we are, and uh, to remember that left to ourselves, uh, we are going to wander, and we're going to fall astray, and we're going to seek our own path. And Lord, that path is a path that leads to destruction. But Father, in your grace, you are seeking us out. You are calling us home. You are finding us lost and wayward sheep. And you're placing on us uh, the atonement of Christ, his garments of righteousness in exchange for our garments of self-righteousness. And so, Lord, may we seek wisdom in you and may we seek nearness and relationship with you, close to you in your presence. And, Lord, may we seek you through your word that you have revealed. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.